0: But we are talking about uh, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, which we've had read throughout our service. But again, as we are doing large portions, uh, as we work our way through the book of Revelation, where there may be some bits I don't get time to deal with in detail, um, do feel free at any time, not just during this series, to uh, come and ask questions. If there's something that you thought, oh, you never said nothing about that. Um, If you've got any questions or any comments along the way, We're going to open up in prayer how that God would teach us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your sovereign goodwill that you have preserved your word for us, that we might know you. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your awesome glory and wonder and splendor. May our hearts be transformed in how we think about you, ourselves, and the world in which we live in. Take your your life-giving and life-changing word by your spirit to transform our hearts, transform our lives. And speak through your word to achieve your purposes according to your will. As in Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm going to ask you to stretch your imagination a little bit. I want you to imagine that I am a builder. Anyone who knows my skills in terms of manual labours is probably having a bit of a chuckle already, but let's stretch your imaginative boundaries here. Not only am I a wonderful builder, but I'm an architect. Now, as it turns out, in high school, tech drawing was my favourite subject. I don't know if it's just because I had a teacher whose name was Mr Panazza, and that was just a cool name. But I want you to imagine I'm a builder, and that I've gone to great lengths, a lot of effort, and I have designed the most beautiful and grand home that you could ever possibly imagine. Early people have seen the plans, and they're just standing in awe and say, this is the most beautifully designed home that I have ever seen. And because it's all been measured meticulously, designed so precisely, there's not even the slightest possibility that anything could even be the minuscule fraction of a millimetre out. And then the grand day comes, the day to start building this beautiful home, and I begin with the roof. It's all measured out, I don't know exactly how far it should be from the ground, I know exactly all of the angles, I know exactly where it needs to go to start this beautiful home. It's also going to provide shelter while I do work on all the rest of the house underneath it. Now, a lot of you who are not even builders realize there's something going a little bit wrong. Why do you not start building with the roof? Well, apparently there's this little thing called gravity. You can't just say this bit belongs this number of metres away from the ground. We'll just slot it in there and it'll stay there while I do all the rest of the work. Gravity is a reality. It is a fact. And it's something that you, when building a house, you need to factor everything you're doing in light of the fact that gravity is a reality. Everything you do, you must orient around that. No matter how well designed, no matter how well measured, no matter how well precise, it must be factored in. It's a factor which affects the entirety of the job. In our passage that we've had read this morning, we see something that is absolutely necessary and foundational for us to understand if we are going to rightly view who we are, what's happening in this world in which we live in, the course of history, we will not get it right if we do not understand this passage right. We see a glorious picture of God who is reigning on his throne over all rule, power and authority and everything in history from from creation to new creation, every single inch, every single detail of it. Every single thing we see, experience, falls underneath the reign of a God who sits on his throne. Now if you recall back to the introduction, John is writing this letter initially to seven churches in the first century who were under great pressure to compromise their faith. They were under pressure to compromise because they were suffering persecution for being a Christian. They were under pressure because their own livelihood was being threatened. In order to be part of a recognised trade guild, you had to bow down and worship the emperor. And if you refuse to do so, then that impacted your ability to make an income. There was the appeal of some of the surrounding religions that all seemed to be flourishing and offered so many things that were pleasing to the eye and to the flesh. And throughout this book, John is remaining to encourage them, say, remain faithful to Jesus. He is so worth it. He is sitting upon the throne over all of history, every single detail of it. And he is the one who has a plan for all of the world's history and into eternity and everything is coming to a point where he will bring the ultimate defeat of all that is opposed to him and you will experience the blessing of relationship with him, to being on the side of the one who wins and who conquers. Effectively, we're spoken of as conquerors in this book. We conquer by remaining faithful to Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin, death, Satan, and the world. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter chapter 1, verses 9 through to 20. To these people who were tempted to, to move away from faith in Jesus Christ, the very first thing that God gives John a vision of is to behold something in the glory of our God, to see something of his majesty and splendor that would cause them to look upon their life and their circumstances and even their hardships to be almost laughable in the sight of the God to whom they belong to. Now, in this second vision in verses chapters 4 to 5, John is given a vision into the heavenly throne room. You could say the control tower of all of human history, And all of the world. You're not really left guessing regarding the central theme. As you read through these two chapters, in 25 verses, we have 18 occurrences of the word throne. It's kind of, say, John wants you to know that there is a God who sits upon a throne, who is reigning over all. So as we look through these two chapters, we're going to look at the throne that rules everything in chapter 4. God's plan for the world revealed in chapter 5 and again, so what do we do with all of this? In just 11 verses of chapter 4, there are 13 references to a throne. That's more than one per verse. Because really, there are two dimensions of reality. There's that which we see, that's which we experience, that's which we read about on the news. And then there is the heavenly reality, which actually governs all of the earthly reality, the things that we see, hear about and read in the news. Who remembers back to the 80s or 90s and those good old magic eye posters, things that just look like a random poster, but if you stared at them in a particular way or focused in a particular way, and I can see people trying really hard from where they are to do this right now, that you would see something beyond what it appears upon first glance. I used to hate these things. One of my mates used to have one on his bedroom door and I can't tell you the number of times I tried to see whatever it is and I could see nothing other than the initial what you see on the surface. In that sense, that makes it a really bad example. But the point is, if our eyes are focused in the right place, we will see things differently if our eyes are focused on the fact that we belong to a God who is seated upon a throne, we will see the world rightly the way in which it is. But just think about it for a moment. The times when we worry, what causes us to worry? It's usually because something's outside of our control, isn't it? Something that we've got no, no say in or no power to affect an outcome. So we start to worry. Yet here we are given that no matter what it is, fits under this umbrella of the reign of God, who is in control of all human history from creation to new creation. Yet we worry when it's outside of our control. You want to weigh that up? Should we really be worrying more about stuff that we control ourselves or if it's in the hands of the almighty God who is good and perfect in all that he does? In reality, I should be more worried about things that I try to control because I know how they turn out when I try to control things. But here we see a glorious picture of a God who reigns who is in control of all things. And as we dive into our passage, it begins, John saying, after this, a phrase we see throughout the book of Revelation, not as a way of saying, here's a chronological or historical sequence of events, but rather a sequence of the visions that John experiences, that he describes. But even before he enters into this state of being in the spirit, while still fully conscious, Somehow he has this vision of a door open in heaven, much like Stephen did when he was being stoned. And he hears a voice like a trumpet, just as we saw described of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 10, who says, come up here and I will show you what soon must take place. And we see in verse 2 this coming up here is this experience of being in the Spirit which by whatever means the Holy Spirit has enabled him through his spiritual eyes to be able to see into the heavenly realities. A glimpse of what is happening in heaven then and continues to happen in heaven until the return of Christ. To show what will happen after this Same expression back in chapter 1, verse 19, speaking of that which will happen now and will continue to happen in all of human history until Christ himself returns. But the very first thing he sees is the central focus of these two chapters. At once when I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. He could pretty much summarise Revelation chapter 4, under three key headings. God is enthroned, God is encircled, and God is extolled, or God is worshipped. So firstly, God is enthroned. Do you notice that? Even in heaven, where there is no sin... Everything is oriented around his throne and there is great, exuberant, passionate worship. And if in that setting where there is no sin, all eyes are on God in awe and wonder and worship, how much more amongst the people who are broken, living in a broken world, cast their eyes to him, in wonder and worship. And you'll notice that Revelation 4 and 5 is a profoundly Trinitarian. It doesn't just speak of the Father's throne. We see in our chapter here of these seven spirits of God we've seen already and it will continue to see throughout the book of Revelation a reference to the Holy Spirit, not saying there are seven Holy Spirits but that number speaking of his perfection and completion. And in chapter 5, we'll see a description of the Lamb, the Son of God, also seated on the throne. At the centre of this vision, God, Father, Son, and Spirit are enthroned. Described in all sorts of ways by precious stones, thunder, and lightning. Speaking of His majesty, His power, His holiness. But God's not only enthroned, God is encircled. We see these 24 elders around the throne. We saw four living creatures on each side. Almost reminds us a little bit when God was going to dwell amongst His Old Testament people in Israel. When they built, given the instruction for the building of the tabernacle and you come to Numbers chapter 2 and they start from the tent of meeting and they work their way around. Everything is focused and centred on the place where God dwells. Firstly, encircled by these twenty-four elders on thrones, wearing crowns. Who are these twenty-four elders? Is, is Samuel one of them? I can safely say no, he's not. Some might say it's representative of the way which David brought up the priesthood into twenty-four different divisions in First Chronicles chapter twenty-four. Others which are more likely to be compelled towards, saying They are representative of the initial forefathers, the the 12 tribes of Israel, and the forefathers of the New Testament church, the 12 apostles. In other words, representative of the entirety of the people of God, both old and new, of all time. But when you get to chapter 5, verse 10, these 24 elders Speak about those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ as them, you have redeemed them as though they are something other than these twenty four elders and most conclude that these twenty four elders are angels who are in some way are representative and representing god 's people of all times. but not only are there these twenty four elders encircle the throne, we have four living creatures in verses six to eight. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, there are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, second like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Probably when you heard the reading, you're like, okay, now we're up to the weird bits in Revelation. Look at all these funny little descriptions. But if you've ever read through the book of Ezekiel, actually in the very first chapter, you'll see some pretty common symbolism going on here. There are, exactly, there are spoken of these four creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1 having what? Faces of? Exactly what we see here. Lion, ox, man and an eagle. The exception being in, in Ezekiel, it's the, the be, these animals have the, all four of these faces on one. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 20, it describes those those beings as being the cherubim. Not necessarily the cute little chubby cheek ones like you see in most of the, the diagrams who are there. And these four living creatures, angelic beings of some form, on all four sides of the throne. So we threw throughout the Bible the idea of the the four winds of the earth, the four points of the compass, encompassing the, the idea of the picture of the entirety of the created order. So we have these 24 elders representative of the entire community of God's people of all time. And these four living creatures representing all of creation and all of the created order. So God is enthroned, he's encircled, and he's extolled both by the 24 elders and the four creatures. The four living creatures never cease to say, never cease to say, like was said of the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. Never cease to say it. They continue to extol and worship him for his holiness. For his rule, he is the Lord, he is the master over all. He is God, he is the powerful one, he is the almighty, he is the eternal one, the one who was and is and is to come. And whenever these four creatures gave glory to God, the 24 elders fall down and worship. You see that throughout these chapters, whenever God is glorified, whenever people behold something of their God who is in their presence, even amongst an angelic realm who are without sin, the natural response is to fall down and to worship. It's an important point. We'll come back to that later on. So in Revelation 4, God's enthroned, he's encircled, he's extolled. All three continue in chapter 5 but there's also an unveiling of God's plan for the world. Next to the throne upon which God is seated says to the right there was a throat, sorry a scroll with seven seals upon it. Inside that scroll we have the entire plan of God's plan of redemption from creation to new creation God's plan for all of humanity for human history. Wouldn't you like a little peek? Well, in coming weeks, we will, to some extent. But first, we see, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. So here is a scroll containing the infinite plan of God for all eternity. Wouldn't you want to have a look and, and, and says nobody was found who could open no one was found who was even worthy to even take a peek. Remember, here is a mighty angel. We've got these twenty four angelic beans plus the four living creatures, They're, those angels. We've got John the Apostle, none worthy to look into this scroll. Some see this as being the scroll that was closed in Daniel chapter 12 verse 4 that said not to be opened till the time of the end. Not only opening it would give us a glimpse into God's plan for all history, but symbolically to open that scroll would be to set it into motion. So if no one is found worthy to open it, not only do we not get a glimpse, but John would be starting to wonder, how is this going to play out if we can't open Remember John, who has previously described himself as a partner with faithful endurance? You want to know that the the path that you're faithfully enduring toward, it hasn't ended. It's coming to that end point that's been promised. And while he's weeping loudly, one of the elders said to him, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe Judah. The root of David has conquered. Say that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That quote about the lion of the tribe of Judah comes from Genesis chapter 49 verses 9 and 10 who speaks of a ruler who will reign forever. Then the shoot from David from Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, both messianic in terms of their interpretation and understanding. They were speaking about one who would rule all peoples for all eternity. This king descended from David. David who we all know is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy to open the scroll. Why? Why he alone? Well, it tells us because he has conquered. Now, as John turns around to see this conquering lion of Judah, what he sees is a lamb. And not just any lamb, a lamb that looks as though it had been slaughtered. Not meaning that it had been motionless or dead. Because he comes and takes the scroll. And you think, how can it be both this picture of a grand majestic figure like a lion and that same one be described as like a lamb who was slaughtered? They seem to be such contradictory images. I mean, after all, if you're going to put forward an image of a triumphant king, a slaughtered lamb is probably not the the image you're going to go for. The lamb is alive. He takes the scroll. He was killed. But he was not defeated. If anything, his death was the greatest conquering and victory of all time. As the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing together, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. By Jesus' death, as the crucified lamb, who was slain, God has rescued a people from all tribes, tongues, and nations for himself. That's not a minor issue. Ever since Adam and Eve, who were once living under God's rule, chose, I'm not going to listen to God. I'm going to listen to this voice and I'm going to rebel. I'm going to be my own man. Ever since that, every single person born into this world is a slave to sin, living under the rule of Satan, and destined towards an eternal punishment of death. Yet when Jesus came as the lamb to be slaughtered, he came to die, not to be punished for his sin, because he was sinless. He was punished for our sin. Sin was conquered on that cross. The death he died was the death we deserve to pay as a result of our sin. Death was defeated on that cross. We were formerly walking in darkness following the prince, the power of the heir of Satan. When Jesus died on the cross by faith in Christ we are pulled out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and Satan is defeated. This lamb has conquered who was slain for us. His conquering not only makes him able to open the scrolls, but he has, by his death and resurrection, set in motion God's plan to move towards the end. From Revelation 6, 1 through 22, verse 5, eventually we, essentially we, we look at the contents of that scroll, that, that plan as it, is, as it is unveiled or you could say is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember the churches that it was originally written to? Struggling in their faith? Tempted to give up? Wondering where, where if God really was in control? And they've got this grand picture 24 angelic elders around the throne with bowls bringing the very prayers of the saints forever before this almighty throne of God. And seeing a lamb which was slain, who is worthy not only to open the scrolls that we might see the plan of God, but to set in motion and carry out that plan. What began with grand worship between these four creatures and the 24 elders extends even further in verses 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and their elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So you start with our like 28 angelic figures being described. Now we've got myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels gathered around his throne singing his praises saying power and glory, might, Honour be to the Lamb. You know what really saddens me sometimes? You hear people read through passages like this and and say, I reckon it's going to be a bit boring in heaven. It kind of seems like we just look at him and we worship and like, is there going to be some Netflix or something? Really? Really? You really wonder if being in the presence of God and to be able to worship him, you think it's going to wear a little bit thin? If that's really you, if it really seems an unsatisfying thing, when I pray at the end, I'm going to pray that God would would open up your eyes to say something more of who your God is. Because if that doesn't sound exciting, it's not because it's not. It's because I don't think you understand exactly what you're going to get. And even the best you're going to understand in this world, is going to be nothing compared to what we will see and experience. But then that worship extends even further now to the entirety of creation. Heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And all the elders fell down and worshipped. Perpetual worship. As they declare the wonder and majesty of the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. So what? Now, I hope that no one could read through chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation and think, Oh yes, so what? There's not much... Going on there. That sounds a bit dull, a bit boring. There are two things in particular I want to highlight that will be for our benefit, for our blessing. The first is quite obvious. God is reigning Father, Son and Spirit over everything, over every detail of human history from start to end, every single aspect of your life. There is never a moment in your life that is out of control. And if it's outside of your control, that's not something to worry about either because your control is pretty minuscule. Now, I don't know what sort of week you've had. There might be some of you had weeks where you think, I just have no idea if God's anywhere involved in my life. I'm not sure if there's any evidence that he cares or if he even has power to do anything in the situation I find myself in. What John is given the privileged opportunity to see happening in heaven, the one seated upon the throne, that's what's happening every day until Jesus returns. He doesn't take a day off reigning from heaven. He's reigning over all with the Lamb who has conquered and with the Holy Spirit. But God knows there are times when we start to question. We wonder, we doubt. And his infinite wisdom, he has given us through the Apostle John a glimpse into what is really reality that affects what we see and experience in this world almost by way of saying stop looking around stop looking around at your circumstances and panicking start looking up and take comfort remember my imaginative story at the beginning of me being a grand builder of house starting with the roof but hadn't factored in something really important this little thing called gravity If you're going to do building, you've got to acknowledge gravity. You must. It's essential. Anything you do is going to be absolutely fruitless and worthless and an utter pain. Likewise, to go on through life, we must necessarily acknowledge the present reign of God over every single thing in order to rightly see our circumstances, our world and ourselves. So, these lift our eyes beyond the struggles, beyond the pains of this world, to know that Jesus is worthy, has opened the scrolls, has conquered, has set in motion that there is absolutely no doubt that in the infinite plan of God that he even had before the foundation of the world is going to be carried through to all of its completion. To bring the conquering reign of Jesus Christ to its complete fulfillment where sin, death, and Satan are not only defeated, but ultimately conquered. If you are a follower of Christ, you belong to the one who is victorious over all. You will live and reign with him for all eternity. You will enjoy his blessing. You will worship him in all of his splendor and holiness. And we conquer now as we endure and remain faithful to him. Yeah, living in this life is hard. We live in a broken world, corrupted in every aspect by sin. But there's coming a day when everything which sets itself in opposition to God will be completely brought to destruction. When those who are His will live with Him, where all of those things will be no longer. In Him you are safe for all eternity. And the second point is, and I've made up a word just to make it sound better, his worthiness equals our worshipness. Worshipness is obviously the word I made up. Because he is worthy, we naturally worship. You can't help but read through these two chapters and notice the constant worship that's taking place around the throne by angelic beings. Not by sinners who have been rescued out of the natural consequences of their sin, but people who have never even experienced sin. To behold something of their God, they have no choice. It naturally results in worship. There is awe and wonder which naturally goes to worship. It's not like I say there's someone there in heaven who says, "Okay, now we're going to stand and we're going to sing, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and shall forevermore shall be." They didn't need to be told to to express their thanks and their worship and their praise. Now I've got no doubt there will be some here this morning who in the being honest in the depth of their hearts thinking, "Yeah, when we come together, I I feel like I'm just going through motions. Yeah, sure, I sing songs, but I'm I'm really not worshipping. Let's be honest, sometimes it just feels hard, doesn't it? Sometimes it does feel like you're going through the motions. You might even have a face just like mine, that even when stuff's going on the inside, on the outside, you wouldn't have a clue. Because I've just got a very unexpressive face. Sorry Sarah and anyone else who's had those difficulties. But worship is the natural response for seeing the worthship of God. To have a sense of awe and wonder who our God is worship naturally takes place. I think all of us can acknowledge that at times when we're in deep sense of awe and wonder, worship's not hard is it? So what do we do when it just feels like we're going a bit through the motions? Why? Why would we be in that place? Maybe we're looking in the wrong places. Remember when we talked about a couple of weeks ago in, t- in that very first vision? We said, "What you behold, you become." Where where your heart is, that's where your mind. That's where your energy is going to go. Could be that could even be that actually you've got a really strong and healthy, vibrant spiritual life, but for whatever reason, God is allowing you to go through a season to test, will you endure? Will you trust that I really am reigning on the throne? Will you continue to endure despite not having that feeling or that experience? Or maybe intentionally or accidentally, is it possible we got wrapped up in just wanting to learn new stuff? We got so excited about learning the Bible that we forgot about the knowing the one to whom which the Bible proclaims. Learning's a good thing, but we're never to learn just for the sake of learning more stuff. No theological training, no theology, no sermon has its ultimate goal that we just might know more stuff. The final end goal of all theology, all sermons, all preaching is that you respond in worship. That you might see and behold our God. J.I. Packer summarises it this way, he says, any theology that doesn't lead to doxology is idolatry. Any theology, that is, any understanding of God that doesn't leave to doxology, that's glory and praise, is just idolatry, it's just being proud about the stuff that you know. My prayer for me, my prayer for you. God, we just want to see you. We just want to know you more intimately. We want to see you as the one who is seated upon the throne. We want to see and live in a world as people who are a kingdom of priests, as you say we are. Living under the reign of the Lord who is sitting on the throne. Belonging to the Lamb who has conquered and has set in motion to bring to conclusion all of the plans of God. Lord, I want to worship you now and I want to worship you in all of its purity and all of its fullness when I see you face to face. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess so often we think so little of you both in time and in grandeur. but we thank you for the reminded picture that you are indeed reigning over all things. Forgive us when we have accused you of being uninvolved in our life. Forgive us when we've proudly presumed that it's up to us to take control of everything, to make everything right. As though somehow you weren't worthy of being trusted with a certain aspect of our life. Lord, you speak of us as being conquerors even in the middle of hardship and difficulty. You speak of conquering as by terms of endurance, not necessarily by relief from the difficulties that we face. Lord, thank you that you give us this beautiful grand picture of who you are. We thank you that Jesus Christ has indeed conquered sin, death and Satan. We thank you we belong to the eternal victor who will bring all things completely in submission under the feet of Christ. And we thank you that all of the things that may stand against you and cause us grief in this life, you will decisively bring them to nothing at his return. And that we will be with you to worship you forever. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.